0: This is a crazy, simple business model, my friend. Jim keeps telling me I can get paid just for taking random widgets off a shelf in a store and moving them to Amazon or eBay. Sign me up. But wait, is that even ethical? I can't wait to hear how Jim explains this one. And then I'm going shopping for deals. I'm looking forward to this one, my friend. Now here's your host, Jim Cockrum. Hey, welcome back, I'm your host, Jim Cockrum. This is Silent Sales Machine Radio, and I am super excited today about a topic that I've had bouncing around in my head because I run into a lot of people in our community that struggle with this issue, and maybe you struggle with it and you don't even realize it, and today we're gonna fix it because until we fix this one little issue that you may not even realize is bouncing around in your brain, you simply can't succeed to your full potential. And the issue we're gonna tackle today is Simply this, is arbitrage a morally virtuous activity? Now, some of you may not even know what I just said. Let me break it down into plain English, real clear, so you can enjoy this discussion and debate. There'll be a link below or wherever you see the show notes for this show. Uh, If you go to silentgym.com, you can always see the show notes for every show. Let's talk about it there. But here, let me put it in plain English. If I go into a retail store and they have widgets there for $10 a piece that are selling for $80 on eBay or Amazon or Facebook marketplace or wherever I might turn around and flip those for a profit. We call that arbitrage. If I buy them for 10 and sell them for 80, have I provided any value to anyone? Have I actually put a valuable service out there to the world that I can be proud of? Is it morally virtuous to take a product from point A to point B and make a profit in doing so? Well, that's the question on the floor. That's what we're going to tackle today. I don't expect that everybody has to agree with me, but remember, as I told you, back in episode zero, if you haven't heard episode zero yet, you'll have to go back and reference it sometime. It's not on iTunes. It's the only episode of my podcast that isn't on iTunes. It's actually at silentgym.com. And I go through and explain how I take a biblical approach to business, meaning I'm doing my absolute best and I study rigorously to make sure that the business decisions and the teachings that I put out into the world are biblically founded. Now, is Facebook in the Bible? No. But how you treat other people sure is. So I treat other people on Facebook according to the same biblical standards that I treat if they were right here with me in real life. So the Bible addresses all of these issues— You don't have to embrace the Bible as your guidebook for life to benefit from the advice and the counsel. Just like many of my clients, I don't go in and say, well, you have to be a Christian for this to work. I don't tell them that. I just say, hey, the last 50 times we tried this, it worked. Do you want to try this? And they say, sure. They don't know or care. I don't care if they care. But it's a biblical principle. That's what we're going to do today with this. So is arbitrage and you may do it retail store when you go in and you buy stuff. You may do it online. You may do it by going to yard sale to yard sale, finding things for 5 or 10 bucks here or there and going back home, taking them home. Maybe you clean them up, maybe you don't, and you flip them and you make a profit. Is that a morally virtuous activity? That's the question for the floor today. And now, just in case you find yourself thinking, well, Jim, I don't care about this topic. Who cares if it's morally virtuous or not? What's that have to do with me? I just need to make some money to pay the electric bill and to keep my cable on. I understand. But here's why it matters, and it should matter to you that we're going to address this question. Because there's ample evidence, and I'm not going to attempt to prove that on today's podcast, But there's ample evidence that if you are involved in a business that you think is not virtuous, your odds of success are exponentially lower than if you believe you are actually providing a valuable, virtuous service to the world. That just makes sense, right? If you're thinking the entire time you're doing your business activities, you're thinking to yourself, I don't believe in this. I don't think this is right. I don't feel good about this. I'm not providing any value to anybody. I'm a terrible person for even thinking about doing this. Why am I doing this for a living? I wasn't made for this. What are your odds of success? I mean, come on, seriously. This isn't rocket science. On the other hand, if you believe in the virtue of the activities you are involved in and you feel like it's benefiting others and you're providing value to others and you're making a profit along the way, which from my vantage point, the only way to make a profit is to do those things, but that's a side note then you're going to succeed. You're going to have much greater odds of success. So this sounds like an interesting topic, doesn't it? Let's dive in. So I figured there's three different kinds of people here that are gonna be listening to this, and you're in one of these three categories. Either you're already fully convinced of the moral virtue of selling physical products online, or you're kind of wavering in it, you're not sure, your mind isn't quite made up yet, or you think it's an er evil, unvirtuous, price-gouging arrangement, and there's zero value there, and shame on anyone who's doing it. Well, if you're in that third category, I may or may not be able to win you over today, and I'm not actually trying to, because you can have whatever worldview you want to have, but I believe I can make a very compelling case that not only is it a legitimate business model, but there is a high level of virtue In that business model of taking widgets that cost $10 off a retail shelf and then selling them for $80 to someone online. As a matter of fact, all business operates that way. In the Hebrew tradition, you see, there's only two ways to make a profit, to build a business. If I'm remembering this correctly from lessons, and I'm going to incorporate a few different lessons from one of my mentors who will be a guest on our show at some point. Actually, it's booked here in a few weeks. He is my favorite living author. His name is Daniel Lappin, and the business book that I recommend all the time, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, I don't care if you're an atheist, I don't care what your worldview is, this book is the bomb when it comes to business advice. It's not common sense stuff. It's called Business Secrets from the Bible. And I'm just telling you, that book is full. It talks about money and business like every other page if you're paying attention, All kinds of valuable lessons, and that's what I credit my success and the success of my clients, many of whom don't even know I'm a Christian. It's irrelevant. It doesn't come up. I don't introduce myself by saying, hi, I'm Jim. I'm a Christian, and if you don't like Christians, sorry, we can't work together. I don't do that, but my foundation of everything I believe and everything I do is based in that book, and it's taken me to some very successful places. So jumping back to the point I was making, in the Hebrew tradition, there's only two ways to build a legitimate business. It has to do with your hands and your feet. You can use your hands to make something to carve something, to craft something, to build something, to dream something up and then bring it to the world. Blood, sweat, and tears. Or you can put the blood, sweat, and tears into your feet, meaning you take it from somewhere where it's not valuable to somewhere where it is of increased value. Both of these activities involve risk. Both of these activities involve you creating value where there wasn't some before. I mean, imagine trying to sell bottles of water near... A bubbling spring of fresh water. There you are. You've got your business idea. You set up your little stand. And it's in the mountains of the Himalayas where all this beautiful, fresh, bubbling water just pops up, and or maybe it's melting at this point. I don't know, but you understand my illustration. You've got this beautiful, pure, crystal clear water, and there you are thinking, hmm, I'm going to sell bottled water right here. How many customers are you going to have? None, because the water's right there. If somebody wants it, they can walk up and get it, but if you want to create a, a valuable business model, how about instead of trying to sell your bottles of water right there, you take them down from the mountain where you filled them with that awesome water. And I'm not a water Nazi, guys. I'll drink any water. I don't care. I do have a nice purification system. I did pay a lot of money for it and I like it and I drink it when I can. But I'm one of these guys that like if there's a water fountain, I'll drink it. I don't care. But I do see the value in being able to walk into a gas station like, oh yeah, I'll grab a bottle of water and pay a few, couple bucks for it. And I see the value in that business model. I know it's good water. So someone's making money on it. They used both their hands and their feet. Someone did. They paid someone to create value to the point where someone was willing to spend money. So there's two ways to create value. We've established hands or feet, right? You create something or you move something from a place where it has little value to a place where it has more value. And that may seem obvious to you. You're like, oh, of course, Jim. You know, that's business. Yeah, that's how it works, right? Everyone understands that. It, it that works the whole world over, right? Well, no, it actually is illegal in a lot of places. Did you know that? Our oldest son, his name is Chase. We adopted him as an infant from Russia. That was our first child. So here, my wife and I are in Russia. We're 20 and 25 years old, maybe uh, 26 and 21. So we're in the country of Russia, never been there before. She hasn't. Actually, I was there, played some basketball there. That was great. Uh, but that's a time, story for another time. But we're in Russia and we just notice, you know, it's very different feeling there. This is the, you know, mid 90s and it's just a, a different feel. Uh, communism has fallen. You know, Russia's supposed to be opening up in a whole new way of seeing the world. And the books are starting to be written about what it was really like behind the, you know, the dark curtain that was communism that engulfed Russia. And I was reading through a book while we were there about this, the economic realities of day to day of Russia. And so we're talking about, you know, using your hands and your feet to create value. And we just assume in most free market economies, yeah, like anyone can take anything from anywhere they want and take it anywhere else. Well, no, you can't in Russia. That's called black market in Russia. I'll give you a very specific example. They had for many, many years, for decades, czars in Russia who were in charge of different industries. So there was a czar of dairy, dairy products, you know, milk, cheese, all that. They had a guy in charge with a committee and these guys were wealthy now. Okay. These guys had stacks of cash. They were living the dream. They were part of the elite. But this elite czar class decided, for everyone else, how many dairy farmers there would be, how much milk they would get to produce, how much cheese they would get to produce, what the price of that milk and cheese would be, and which cities would get how much milk and cheese. So we could keep everything on an equal playing field. They were in charge of all things that had anything to do with dairy, and they controlled it from the top down. No free market activities allowed, to the point where you had cities— And this is history. Look it up. You don't have to believe me. Look it up. So you'd have cities located 20 miles from each other. And in one city, you'd have milk in so much excess supply at such a ridiculously low price that it was rotting on the shelves. Everyone was like, no, I don't need any more milk. We've got all the milk we could possibly need. Now, if you have any meat, we'd love to talk to you. But milk, it's everywhere. It's so cheap. It's ever, it's rotting on the shelves. We've got milk that's a week from expiring that we know we're never going to sell. So you might think to yourself, well, an enterprising entrepreneur just needs to take that milk from one city and find a city where they don't have it. Yeah, 20 miles away, there's another city that's desperate for milk. Now, it's the same price there, right? Because prices are fixed across the board. Milk is the exact same price in that second city. But you can't find it anywhere because the czars and their infinite wisdom – had done some miscalculations and sent far too little milk to that second city. So it sells out instantly. There's no milk to be found. So if you were to get in your car and go from one city to the other and gather up all that milk that's a week from expiring and take it to the second city and attempt to sell it, that's illegal black market activity. Welcome to the gulag, which is a place you don't want to be. Russian prison. That's where you go to vanish. That's where you go to disappear in old Soviet Russia. And there's remnants of this to this day. This is what it looks like when you don't have free markets. As soon as you remove the ability for people to use their hands and their feet to to create, to add value, to grow businesses, that's where you go next. That's why I believe 100% that free market is a biblical model. That's the way the world is supposed to work. That's why the greatest economy that the world has ever seen grew out of unfettered free market principles where anybody can compete with anybody and charge whatever price they want for whatever they want. And there's no such thing as gouging, which is a term that comes up a lot. And we'll get real specific in just a minute about gouging and what is gouging and what isn't gouging. And again, our premise is, is it virtuous to take a widget off the shelf for 10 bucks and sell it for $80 online? Is there virtue in that? Can you be proud of that model? But before we go too much further, I want to make one other point before we dig in real deep here. And that's this. Maybe you're not someone who has a passion for business, for selling widgets for 10 bucks and making $80. Maybe you come from that school of thought where someone's told you at some point, and we talked about this on earlier podcasts, guys, so I'll make it brief, but someone told you at some point, do what you love, son. Young lady, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I told you how much I don't like that message right? The reason I don't like that message is the premise is one, work is bad. And it's a very self-centered message. Like, okay, if I only do what I love, let's see, I love sitting on the bank of a river and fishing. That's what I love. That's what I'm passionate about. And I never have to work a day in my life. Awesome. I'm going to go fishing every day. If we all did that and none of us added value, the world would not be where it is. Technology would not advance. We would not have these incredible advances in technology and medicine and food production and all the opportunities that pop up in a free market that have raised the standard of living for the entire planet in the last couple hundred years, especially. So free markets are a beautiful thing, providing value where there wasn't any before turning something of low value into something of higher value by either working on it with your hands or moving it with your feet. We need people willing to do that. And as i talked about in episode Six of this very podcast, How to Make Your First $100 Online, it is this model that we're talking about right now, the arbitrage model of taking a widget where it's $10 and moving it to somewhere where it's worth 80 to someone, okay? I don't care what your passion is. I'm not telling you don't pursue your passion. That's not what I just said. But I'm saying, wouldn't it be great to free up your time by having a valuable business that adds value to the lives of other people where they pay you money? As my mentor Daniel Lappin calls those dollar bills, certificates of appreciation, meaning every dollar you have in your wallet. Right now, I can tell you, I can read your mind through this podcast. I'm going to go right into where you are, and we're going to look in your wallet, and we're going to pull the biggest dollar bill that we can find, the biggest denomination that we can find out of your wallet, and we're going to hold it up and look at it, and I can tell you exactly how you got that money. You ready for a cool magic trick? Go ahead, pull it out if you want to. You can hold it. No, I'm not going to have you send it in to me. I'm not going to have you mail it to me. I just want you to, to imagine yourself holding it, the biggest bill in your wallet. And I will tell you exactly how you got it. Would that be a cool trick? Here's how you got it you got it by serving somebody else, providing value, providing more value than the numbers printed on that currency. Because otherwise, why would they have given it to you? It's a certificate of appreciation, it's a certificate of achievement. You accomplished something for another human being, and in exchange, they gave you those funds. It's that simple. So, yes, I want you to pursue your passions, but if you can find ways to provide value that puts money into your pocket while providing a very valuable service and make that a side thing, this is like the Uber thing. It's like, hey, this could be your side gig. Now, with this model, though, that we're talking about, this arbitrage thing, I've got people putting hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in the bank doing it. So it could very easily turn into a full-time thing, and you can turn a system, and you can do build huge a huge business. Remember, we talked to Brian Young a few episodes ago. That was back in episode five. He's the dude, all he does is check his numbers. He's got people out there sourcing books, finding books, saving these books from dumpsters in most cases. These quarter books or nickel books, or they're free or they're a dollar, and he's turning them into 30 and $50 bills, $30 or $50 profits by selling them on Amazon. What a cool model. Is he passionate about saving books from landfills? No, he's not. He has other passions, other things that he's very involved in that he pursues, and he has plenty of time for it because he's built a thriving, profitable business. So I'm not trying to talk you out of your passions here. I'm not telling you don't pursue your passion and try to build a business around it. That's a beautiful thing to do. But there's some low-hanging fruit. Because of the day and age we live in, this whole arbitrage thing is very low-hanging fruit, and it's not going anywhere. I wrote a blog post. It's been a few months ago, but it's 100% relevant because from time to time, you'll hear people panic and they'll say, oh, no, arbitrage is over. Arbitrage is over. No, as long as there's free markets, there will be arbitrage. It will happen. People will find a way to find widgets that were mass produced and sent to some area where they're of less value, and we can go into that area, we can buy them up in bulk, and we can move them to an area where they have more value to more people and make a profit doing it. That's how the free markets work. So yes, arbitrage will always be here. I'll put a link in the show notes to that blog post so you can dive deeper into it in case you find yourself thinking, oh, this arbitrage thing, uh, it's just a, it's a temporary thing. No, we've been doing it for 15 years. It'll be here 100 years from now, moving stuff from one place to another to make a profit. That's been happening for thousands and thousands of years. The Hebrew culture understands that that's one of only two ways to make money. With the Legitimate, virtuous business, you move stuff from one place to another place where it has more value. That's a model that's always going to be here, guys, so don't think that it's going away anytime soon. It's not, okay, so I promise I am going to get to the point where I talk specifically about arbitrage as a result as it relates to buying widgets on a retail store or online and selling them for significantly more money than you paid. And is that morally virtuous? Can you feel good about that business model? And I'm slowly building a case here. Maybe the dots are already connecting for you. Maybe they're not. But let me just go through it and and ask you some hard questions if you're struggling with this. This is an example that I heard. This was on a podcast. Again, I'm referencing my mentor, Mr. Lappin's material again. But he goes through, and I'm not going to tell the story perfectly. You can listen to his podcast. It's fantastic. Daniel Lappin's podcast is great, guys. But he talks about this example. Let's imagine that you and I now are forced to make a really difficult decision. Let's create a scenario. And this actually happens. I mean, governments around the world and and people around the world have had to make these decisions for since the beginning of time. Let's just imagine as we have here in the United States, there's there's several uh, states that border the ocean, right? And then they'll have little islands just off the, just off the mainland. And there's property where the property is so expensive on these little islands because it's just gorgeous, right? So let's put in your head one of these little five-square-mile islands just off, you know, create some beautiful scenario in your mind right now. Beautiful beaches, beautiful island, pristine conditions, the weather is perfect year-round. It's where everyone wants to be, okay? Now we're going to say, who gets to live there? We got to decide. Who gets to live there? And how do we decide who gets to live there? And my premise is, just to jump to the end, and then we'll fill in all the other ways we could decide. My premise is there's only one. It's not a perfect solution by any means, but it makes a whole lot of sense to me that whoever's willing to pay the most money for those pieces of land gets the land. Like, oh, Jim, you say the rich people should get preferential treatment. Oh, that's not right. Well, no, I'm saying let's come up with a better solution than that if you can think of one. I can't. And we already established the premise that the only way to get money, unless you're stealing it from people, and those people should go to jail, they should be punished. If you're someone who steals money or tricks people and and deceives them into giving you money and they regret the decision afterwards, you see, my definition of a good transaction is, and this is what I put into all my products and courses and coaching and training and everything else is, once you give me your money, my goal is that a year from now, you look back at that transaction and you're thinking to yourself, man, I was so smart to do that. That's my definition of a good transaction. So when you're dealing with business people who have that exact same approach, I don't care if it's a cheeseburger or a book or a house or property, you're not scamming people. We're talking about the free market doing what it does, where someone voluntarily gives over their money in exchange for a product. And at the end, both parties are happier and better off for it. And they go their own ways and neither one of them regrets it even three or six months later. Those are beautiful transactions, right? Can we agree on that at least? Okay, so we've got that premise settled. Transactions are a good thing when there's no deception. So we've got these people who engage in multiple transactions. They've built these big businesses. They're putting a lot of money in the bank, pleasing a lot of people. They've got a lot of certificates of appreciation in their pocket. So if you've got people who have a lot of certificates of appreciation and certificates of accomplishment, shouldn't they maybe get the first shot at the most beautiful locations to build their house? Well, Jim, you're talking about the rich getting the good stuff and everyone else kind of getting left out. Okay. Well, let's just talk about the other possibilities that we have here. Okay. What other ways can we decide? Let's say there's 50 pieces of land on this island. Only 50 people get it. You know, this is coastal property, the most beautiful property. How are we going to decide who gets it? Well, here are our options, and this is a lesson that my mentor, Lappin, shared with me. The first way we could decide who gets those pieces of property is we could have the biggest, strongest guy with the roughest, toughest gang and the best weapons get the property. I mean, that's certainly a viable option. I mean, that's certainly the way a lot of the world works, right? Right. If you're a tiny, puny, rich guy, doesn't matter. I've got a, a bulldozer and a gang. <laughs> what are you going to do, Mr. Rich Man? You know, you build your house. I'm going to come in, bulldoze it, kill you, take the land. It's mine now. What are you going to do? Now, I don't think any of us prefer that option. And there's only a few options here. And if you can think of others, I would love to hear them, okay? as so I go through this list of options. But the first option is the biggest, toughest, meanest guy gets to take whatever he wants. Let's just hope no one bigger, tougher, and meaner than that guy comes along or he loses what he has eventually. Right. So you're constantly defending your territory. None of us want that, which by the way, that's how the world worked for most of human history. That's pretty much how it worked up until the rule of law. And you know, I'm not going to go deep into history, but you know, we're very fortunate to be alive in the time we are when you can be the little puny skinny guy. And if you've got some money and you build a great business, the world is at your fingertips. You provide value to enough people, you can have whatever you want. That hasn't always been true. It used to be true like you better be ready to defend yourself with clubs and you better have an army and a gang and people watching your back because they're coming for you. That's how the world used to work. Not anymore. But none of us want that, right? Can we agree on that? If you want that, you're listening to the wrong podcast. Okay, the, the next way we could go is let's form a committee. Let's get the smartest people on this committee. Let's get, you know, maybe to you the smartest people are college professors and and established, recognized politicians and, and people who got really good grades in college, and let's get a few of them, you know, let's put them on a committee, and, and they get to pick who gets this land, right? Well, well, the problem with that is, strangely enough, if we go down that road, the people who get the land are the people on the committee and their friends and family. Ever seen that happen before in politics? If you haven't, you're not paying enough attention, because that's kind of how it works. If you want really preferential treatment, it's kind of who you know in that system, Right? So you don't need a lot of money to get a piece of land, but you need to know somebody who knows somebody. Now you get one of those sweet properties. It's not about who has the most money is willing to pay the most and sees the most value in it anymore. It's who knows who. I don't think we want that system either, do we? Can we throw that one out, please? Because I think it's ridiculous. That's basically – remember the czars in communist Russia? That's how it worked there because the czars never had to worry about milk and cheese. The czar of dairy had all of it he wanted. He got to pick who made what and how much they charged for it. And I'm sure he had plenty of free samples for him and his family. That's how the system worked, right? So he was fine with milk and cheese taken care of. So we don't want that system. We want something much more economically adjusted so that everybody has opportunity. Equal opportunity. Doesn't that sound nice? Everyone has an equal shot. Okay, so here's another option. Oh, we could have a lottery. We could have a drawing. Say everybody's got a fair shot at it, right? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have, how old you are, how young you are. If you're a drug addict who just got out of prison, if you're you know, you have no means to take care of the property, you're a sluggard, lazy guy who just wants to lay around all day and your property's gonna be in disarray and the, the property's gonna look horrible a couple of years from now. It doesn't matter. We're having a lottery. And maybe you like that idea. Personally, I think it's a terrible idea, and I think you probably do too. Right. So we're working our way through. We're running out of options here, guys. We really are. The other option is let's all just share it. Let's all just share the prop. Now there's a good one, Jim. Yeah. That's the one I was waiting on, right? Let's all just share. Nobody should have such a beautiful place. Let's all share it. Well, I got some bad news for you. If you're thinking in that direction, here's the bad news. Deciding that we should all share it. All you've done is you've delayed the decision that's on the floor. Here's what I mean by that. You mean I understand what I mean? Okay. So now we've decided we're all going to share the beach. Nobody gets to build on the beach. So my next question is, okay, now the really valuable property is 200 yards off the beach. Who gets that? All we've done is delayed the decision. You follow me? So maybe you don't want to talk about the beach. Everybody gets the beach. Nobody should be able to build a house on the Grand Canyon. I think we can all agree on that, right? Well, who owns the property around the Grand Canyon? Now, that's the thing you need to talk about. I actually and I don't remember the exact facts, but it cracked me up. My family and I actually went to the Grand Canyon recently and I found out that no, that's, you know, obviously we all own that as Americans. That's public property. It's it's our it's all of ours. That that's cool. I think the government owns a little bit too much property sometimes, but that's cool. I understand some of it. Yeah, we really want to, as a collection, we we want to own it and protect it. But who owns the stuff that's right on the edge of that? Man, that's some valuable property we've just created for those people. Like the highway going into the Grand Canyon, if you want to go see it, the guy that owns that land, the government's paying him a ton of money to build a road through his property because he owns it. So we got to make a decision. Who gets the land right next to the really sweet stuff, Right. So all you've done is delay the decision by saying, let's all share it. So what's left? If you can think of any other options, I'd love to hear them. I can't think of any other options. My mentor, Daniel Lappin, he didn't offer any other options. I mean, we can basically say no one's allowed to go to the island. I guess we could—that you know, that is one other option. No one is ever allowed to experience or go or see or visit anything near this. But even then, we all we've done is delay. So how close can we go? Who controls how close we get to the beautiful island? right? This is all silliness. The only option, is it perfect? No, it's not a perfect option. But the only option we have is to say the person who has the most certificates of appreciation in their pocket and is willing to give up the most of those in order to get a piece of property on that island gets a piece of property on that island. Doesn't it make sense? Now, if we found out that you got your money by beating up old ladies and stealing it out of their purse, well, we're going to put you in jail and know you're not going to get to have your property there anymore because you got your money by beating up old ladies. And we don't accept that in our culture. However, if you got your money by building the best cheeseburger in town and everybody wanted your cheeseburger and you made a lot of money because you set up a lot of places that sell this delicious, awesome cheeseburger that only costs you $2 to make, but people are willing to pay pay $10 for it. You only charge 6 and you make a lot of money doing it. Hey, you can buy one of those houses because you want to exchange some of your value that you've accumulated for that piece of land, there you go. So hopefully some more dots are starting to connect in your head on the virtue of arbitrage. And let's talk real specific now. As I'm recording this podcast, this episode, the hot toy this year is the Hatchimals. It's the Cabbage Batch dolls from the early 90s. It's this Tickle Me Elmo from the late 90s, early 2000s. It's the it's the bomb this year. It's the toy that no kid is even going to care about five years from now. But right now, everybody wants a Hatchimal. They're willing to pay a ton of money for it. And there's a few other toys that are the same way. So the big raging debate in our community is, at what point is it price gouging? If I can go get these Hatchimals for X, at what point am I price gouging people? And what, some of those customers, some of the accusations that you'll hear from people who have to pay extra for these items because you got in line at 3 in the morning and you went into that retail store and you bought all 50 of them, and now you're going to sell them for maximum profit. Is that an unvirtuous activity or is there virtue in that? My premise is not only is it virtuous, but it is of extreme value and virtue to those customers that you sell the product to. I'll illustrate it one more time. And one of the places I learned this lesson before I fully understood it myself, let's go back in time about 15 years when I was first getting started online. I used to sell event tickets to concerts. I would get up early on a Saturday morning. I would log in at ticketmaster.com. I would scour the internet looking for the valuable tickets, looking for the valuable venues. And here's the thing. I was taking some huge risks buying tickets. At some of these venues, where I ended up losing money on tickets. So sometimes I would lose money, sometimes I'd make money. But my customers were always happy with what they paid. Otherwise, they wouldn't have paid me. When I'd get these front row tickets for some hot concert back then, it was Britney Spears or Insync or you know the bands from the from the early '90s. It was probably uh, more like mid '90s to late '90s when I was doing this business model, selling these tickets online. You'd be thinking, "Oh, Jim, that's terrible. You made money off of selling a commodity that all you did was." Mark it up? Yeah, that's exactly how business works. What business stays in business by selling a profit for less than what they paid for it? There isn't one. That's the definition of profit. You pay X, then you sell it for X plus a premium to somebody willing to pay that premium. You don't gouge anyone. You don't force anyone to do that, but you take it from a place of lower value to a place of higher value. So in this case, there weren't that many people willing to get up early on a Saturday morning and log into Ticketmaster and pound away, pound away, pound away, and try to get the good tickets. Most people would rather sleep in and buy tickets a week before the, the show. I was providing a value to the people who say to themselves, I'm busy doing what I do in life. I'm busy not paying attention to the calendar. And when my daughter says, oh, I really want to go to the Britney Spears in LA this week, mom, and I'd love to be in the second row. You know what? You can't get those tickets for the same price that the back of the arena. You just can't. So was was I willing to pay to charge money for those tickets to people who are willing to pay? Absolutely. And here's what would happen. Here's the lesson. I want you to put yourself in this scenario. So I'd have this auction going on eBay for these tickets, two front row tickets. And, and these were hard to get now. Okay. They were really hard to get tickets, but I got them and it happens from time to time. And I have this auction going and it'd be the last day of the auction. And then the emails would start pouring in. My daughter is sick. Can you please help me? I would love to have these tickets. Can you just sell them to me at face value? Please, just this one time, it would mean the world. What would you do? Well, from time to time, I gave in. Absolutely, I gave in. And from time to time, when I'm out online arbitraging, and we've got a cart full of some hot widgets, I'll go, oh, wow, we were going to get one of those. I'm like, here you go, take it. Absolutely. You, know, you don't have to be heartless. You can be very human about this. But I haven't finished my scenario yet. What would you do? My daughter's sick. She really wants to go to this. This is going to be just awesome. She's finally starting to feel better after being sick for months. You think, oh, Jim, yeah, sell on the tickets. Come on, dude. Well, okay, then comes the next email. It's been my life dream to take my son to this event. It's been a goal of ours for years, and we've been unable to get in. Then the next email, and the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. And then you get 60 emails. And then you get 150 emails. Yes, I had occasions where some tickets that we had on eBay, I got 150 emails from people each pleading their case and me having no way to verify if they were trying to just, you know, pull one over on me or not. I had no way of knowing. All I knew was that the only truly equitable system to use was to let the person who saw the most value in those tickets have them. Who sees the most value in this item? That's who I will sell it to. And that is a virtuous model because it means the person who is serving the most people, accumulating the most certificates of appreciation is the one who ends up getting the item. And I'm not talking about life saving drugs here. You know, we can get off into those debates and have all kinds of fun. Like, you know, you've got the last bottle of water in a in a dry parched land and you're selling it for ten bucks and it only costs you a quarter. Is that ethical and moral? We don't have to get off into those weeds. I'm talking about event tickets and hatchimals, guys. I mean, come on. The person who sees the most value in it gets it. Is that virtuous? Absolutely. Because there's a whole lot worse things that a parent could have to tell their child than you know what, we can't afford to go to that concert. You know what, the Hatchimals are costing way too much money this year. But there will be some people who have accumulated enough certificates of appreciation in their pocket that they do want to spend a little extra. And you've provided those people an incredibly valuable service by being the person willing to wait in line and bump elbows and bounce around a crowded retail store or log in early. Or really monitor the situation, pay attention to what was going on so that you can serve those among us who are out there busy serving others really, really well. And they've accumulated enough money to be able to afford, and they're very willing to pay more, and they're ecstatic, and they deserve. This is where the virtue of it comes into play for me. That person who's willing to pay five times face value. And they thanked me. Some of the coolest thank you letters I ever got, some of the coolest thank you emails I ever got were from these people that said, thank you so much for putting this auction on eBay for those two tickets. You have no idea what it meant to my family and I that we could reward our kid who has worked so hard and deserved this so much. And we would have paid five times more than we paid you. We had to have those, and you've served our family in such an awesome way. Thank you so much. I loved getting those emails, wouldn't you? And isn't that the proper perspective? When there's limited supply, guess what? The price is going to go up, and we as business people, as risk takers, are involved in the very virtuous activity of rewarding those among us who are providing the most value to the fellow humans around you, as measured by how many certificates of appreciation do they have in their pocket. And we make sure that the person who sees the most value in our widgets is the person who gets them. That is a virtuous free market model. And if any of this isn't resonating with you, I would encourage you, go back and listen through this again and pick the logic apart. Tell me where I'm wrong. Define price gouging for me if you would. How is it not price gouging Possibly that label could be applied to absolutely every transaction in a free market economy. So you're either pro-free market or you're not. It's really kind of hard to play in the gray area. Now I have some great friends who would completely disagree with me on this, and I'm perfectly fine with that. I don't need you to agree with me for us to be friends. I mean, that's one of the huge problems we have right now in our culture is we've got an entire generation that thinks if someone disagrees with me, that means I have to hate them, right? And we, and our culture says, yes, you must hate those who disagree with you. No, I I don't care what your belief system is, we can be friends. Don't take my stuff and don't hurt me and we can get along, right? I mean, that's my approach. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But I do see it as part of my personal mission to encourage entrepreneurs. And part of me encouraging entrepreneurs is to convince you that there is tremendous virtue in the only two business models that have ever existed, using your hands and feet to create value. Use your hands to create something Use your feet to take something from one place of lesser value to another place where it's considered more valuable, and you're serving those who see greater value by doing it. It's that simple, guys. Hey, I've, I'm going to have a link in the show notes, bullet. Come debate it. Come talk. I don't expect you have to agree with me here. Maybe you have a great definition of price gouging. I would love to see it. I've never seen one. I've never seen anyone actually take an attempt at price gouging, because the first question I have is, well, who gets to decide what percent is Okay. What percent of profit is, you know, is 20% profit okay? Oh, that's gouging. Okay, 15%. Uh, no, that's okay. Then you talk to someone else. Oh, 40% is price gouging. Oh, doubling the price is price gouging. It, it's such an arbitrary, random thing. How about we just go with free markets? And how about you go back and you think through that whole beach property example with me and tell me what other system works better than a free market? So to jump to the conclusion of this show. Hopefully this didn't feel like rambling. Hopefully you enjoyed this journey. And I definitely don't expect that you have to agree with me, but I feel very virtuous in selling to the highest bidder because every time I'm thinking to myself, I'm selling this product to a person who has found creative ways to serve their fellow human beings, and they're finding great value in this transaction. Otherwise, they wouldn't be giving me money. So I'm making them happy, providing a valuable service to one of the other Fellow human beings who spends their time and spends their days providing value to other people. It's like this secret club we have. It's this secret club of people who spend their days providing value to other people and getting certificates of appreciation back for having done it. So yeah, is there a secret club you have to belong to to succeed in business? Yeah, there is. It's called the club of people who enjoy serving others and don't mind being rewarded with certificates of appreciation as they do it. How's that? Hey, come debate me! I'd love to debate on the Facebook group. We'll have a link to this whole discussion. You can tell me what you think. Tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me where those lines are in the sand. Tell me how you'd do it differently. Tell me what other scenario you can think of on the best way to decide who gets that beachfront property. I'd love to hear your ideas. I'm Silent Jim of SilentJim.com. This is Silent Sales Machine Radio. I thank you for listening. I love doing this. If you hated this episode, please don't leave me feedback on iTunes. However, if you loved it, (laughs) if you loved it, jump over to iTunes, leave me a five-star review. I would love for you to do that. Don't forget to subscribe over at iTunes as well, because that really helps us bump up in the rankings and get noticed by people who don't know who we are. Be encouraged, entrepreneur. You are providing incredible value. You are the engine that makes all this happen. Small business, especially in the United States, small business, those of us with just a handful of employees or maybe no employees, we make up 80% of the economy. We are the economy. Keep plowing forward. You're doing good work. Love serving you, fellow warrior. Let's keep rolling forward full speed ahead. God bless you. Make it a great week. Until next time, this is Jim signing off.